along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. It is a pleasure to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Joe Brewis. Joe is Professor of People and Organizations in the Faculty of Business and Law at the Open University Business School. Her research interests fall into two broad categories. First, the intersection between the body, sexuality, gender, emotions, identity, organizing and organizations, including publications on the menopause transition and women's economic participation, and methodological considerations in organization studies deploying queer theory. And the second is academic practices in organization studies research, including publications on research ethics and peer review. In addition to this, Joe is the co-author of the 2017 UK government report, The Effects of Menopause Transition on Women's Economic Participation in the UK. As an independent panel member for menopause-friendly accreditation, amongst other activities, she works to, to further the menopause in the workplace agenda. Joe, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks so much for inviting me, Laurie. I'm excited for our conversation. Well, it is great to have you here, and I'm particularly interested to, to discuss this whole question of the menopause and the, the implications for the workplace. So maybe if we start with what might be a simple question, perhaps. What is menopause? Yeah, it's it sounds like a simple question, um, but in actual fact, it's not because the this this experience, um, which more than half the world's population go through, is actually I think quite badly misunderstood, at least in in popular terms. So the menopause, quite simply, is the point at which um, a woman a woman stops menstruating, and so at that point, she's no longer able to fall pregnant. However, in, in strict medical terms, the menopause is only actually 24 hours in duration because it's the day 12 months after a woman's last menstrual period. So when her symptoms begin in the run-up to that day, we would describe her as being perimenopausal or in menopause transition. Then after that day, after that 24-hour period, she's postmenopausal. So in actual fact, we use the word menopausal um, to cover a whole array of experiences when actually we probably in clinical terms should be a little more precise. <laughs> but really what, what, it's, um, what it turns on, at least at a biological level, and there's a lot more to it than biology, are very unpredictable, changing, declining levels of three key hormones, usually from about the late 40s onwards. And those hormones are estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. And it's also really important to point out, although we always talk about women experiencing menopause and we use placeholders like she and her, in actual fact, there are a lot of people who would identify as transgender or gender non-conforming who also go through menopause. Not everybody who has a menopause would understand themselves as a woman. Okay. So if, if we take that, that final point and, and think about you know, people who experience menopause m more broadly, what then are the, the impacts of, of menopause? You mentioned as well, you know, the, the hormonal changes, but in really practical terms, what, what does that mean? 
Well, there are something like 34 recognised symptoms of menopause, believe it or not. Um, and these range from, I think, the ones that most of us are quite familiar with. So the hot flush being the obvious example, um, mood swings, that kind of thing. But it can also have other physical effects, including problems with skin, excessive hair growth or hair loss. It can have implications for your joints and your bones. There can be all sorts of, of physical complaints, including also urinary incontinence that, that come along at this time of a woman's life. But there's also quite a lot of other psychological symptoms which we may not recognise as necessarily connected to menopause. And these include lo loss of concentration, loss of confidence, inability to focus, problems with memory, depression, anxiety, the list goes on. I think it's important to say, though, that I don't want to paint a picture whereby somehow menopause is, you know, utterly miserable and everybody who goes through it has an absolutely terrible time. Um, it's true to say that most of us who experience it have some symptoms, but evidence suggests that um, about 25% of people who experience menopause have very debilitating symptoms. That's still a very significant proportion of the number of people who experience menopause worldwide, but I don't mean to suggest that symptoms are always as problematic as I think sometimes the stereotypes can suggest. And so for those 25% that you mentioned there, where the, the impacts are, are much more perhaps serious than, than for others, or more significant possibly, what way does that play out? And, and, and in what way are they more significant? Well, if if I give you a very extreme example, um, I have met a woman um, probably about 18 months ago now who had such severe mental health issues that she actually ended up being sectioned. Now, I find this absolutely terrifying and she kept trying to insist that she was sure that this was to do with her menopause and nobody was listening to her. And it was only when she was actually able to make it very clear that that's in fact what it was that she started to get the help that she need needed. So I think what, what happens is that um, sometimes menopausal symptoms are misrecognised, perhaps as being something much more serious by the women themselves, or indeed their midlife, other illnesses, other perhaps much more serious illnesses, perhaps like uterine cancer, are missed because clinical staff assume that the symptoms somebody is is demonstrating are in fact just to do with the menopause. And I think it's it's also the case with all due respect to our wonderful GPs in this country. In the UK at least, um, GPs are not very well trained on menopause. There's not a great deal of understanding about it in in the lay world, if you like, either. There's a lot of misinformation and stereotypes and taboos circulating. And all of this can come together to, to quite literally make women feel as if they're going mad in midlife, when in actual fact, they may be experiencing very debilitating symptoms, but there are ways of dealing with those symptoms as long as they're recognised as being menopausal. And, and it seems strange that, as you say, more than 50% of the world's population experience this um, phase of, of life, the menopause, and yet it seems so poorly understood both by society overall, but also by medical practitioners. Yes, yes. And, and this is um, this is something that we've we've been thinking about and considering for the last six or seven years now. 
I think there is there is something quite significant going on here, actually, and the the phenomenon that that we believe underlies this lack of understanding. Um, is actually what our friends and colleagues Kat Riak and Gavin Jack call gendered ageism. So in other words, it's kind of an unholy mix of sexism and also ageism, whereby they come together to produce a sense in which older women's bodies are really not something that um, perhaps even clinical personnel necessarily want to understand terribly well. And, and this, I think, is where we, we end up with stereotypes like, oh, she's over the hill, she's past it, you know, she's a hysterical middle-aged woman, and so on and so forth. So that's what we think is underlying um, the lack of understanding uh, about menopause. That said, I would say that the UK in particular has come on leaps and bounds in the last six or seven years. And I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to see prominent celebrities like Davina McCall most recently, also people like Mariella Frostrup, Kirsty Walk, coming out and speaking very openly about their own experiences of menopause because we feel the more people who talk about it, the more normal it will become. It's also worth saying, of course, that everybody who has the, the appropriate biological equipment, if you will, will experience menopause, whereas not everybody who has that equipment will fall pregnant and give birth. We understand it seems a lot more about pregnancy and maternity than we do about menopause, even though menopause is much more common. Okay. And from what you're saying, clearly there, there must be significant impacts on people's ability to work and to to undertake what might seem like like fairly normal day-to-day -day activities you know taking that example of the of the person you mentioned who was sectioned the the ability to work in that kind of situation when the, the symptoms become more extreme must be severely curtailed yes absolutely and i think what what um, it's important to point out here is is that there's a bit of a vicious circle. So if you have problematic symptoms, that can really lower the quality of your working life quite significantly. So think, for example, of, and this is very germane, I think, in the current climate, think, for example, of a, of a doctor or a nurse having to wear a PPE in a hospital environment and experiencing a hot flush. Um, think, for example, of somebody whose mental acuity is absolutely vital to the job they do. So I'm thinking here in particular of a staff supervisor in a police service who had to make very fast decisions day after day after day. And when her menopause dawned, if you like, when her symptoms started, one of the particular effects was a real impact on her memory and her ability to concentrate. And that made her job so much more difficult. Then if you build into that the fact that a lot of women are dis worried about disclosing that they're having difficulties with their menopause at work because of gendered ageism, then things just start to roll up even more into an even more problematic situation. It's also true to say that, as I've indicated with the PPE example, that not only can symptoms make work more difficult, but work can sometimes make symptoms more difficult. So to give you another example from an educator in the National Health Service who I interviewed, and she was talking about how if something pops into her inbox that 
demands her attention. It doesn't have to be particularly big, it doesn't even necessarily have to be particularly urgent, but she found that that sort of thing, which is a daily occurrence for most of us, uh, really triggered her hot flushes. So she described her temperature as being up and down like a yo-yo in a working day. So it was fan off, fan on, fan off, fan on all the time. So it's, it's that vicious circle effect, really. And certainly for myself, one of my um, key symptoms is, again, the, the memory issue, the lack of focus. And the number of times I've had to surreptitiously look at a piece of paper in a meeting just to remember what the person next to me is called, even when I've worked with them for five, six, seven years. So, yes, even, even quite mild symptoms like my own can prove quite debilitating in a working environment. I, I can absolutely imagine that and, and thinking again about people say, you know, someone who might be a judge or someone who might be a research scientist and that mental acuity that is needed at, at very kind of vital and critical moments. If that is impaired in any way, then, then clearly the, the impacts are significant. Yes, absolutely. If you take a step back then from the individual and, and think about the context in which they might be working, so the, the organisation, what are some of the implications of, of this for organisations? Because surely they must also be felt at that level. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, our strong message to employers, and as I alluded to earlier, I think the UK um, is is much more menopause literate than it was six or seven years ago. And that also translates into organisations. So we've seen an enormous amount of such good work being done in conjunction with organisations like Hempicked Menopause in the Workplace who also set up the Menopause Friendly Accreditation. They have literally supported thousands of organisations which affects tens of thousands if not millions of, of staff in terms of providing more supportive organisational environments. So I think there's a lot of proactive and very important work being done and the strong message that we want to send is that actually a lot of the things that might support menopausal women at work aren't necessarily very expensive and a lot of them are also underpinned and need to be underpinned simply by better understanding and more empathy around this time in a woman's life. And we also need to understand, of course, that women between the ages of 50 and 64, which is roughly speaking in the average menopausal range, they are one of the fastest growing groups in the UK workforce and indeed in workforces across the global north. So, so this is a really important demographic issue which employers need to pay attention to. Also, we know that already in the UK there have been three successful employment tribunals where complainants have succeeded in prevailing against employers who were well aware of these women's problematic symptoms and yet saw fit to either bully and harass them in one case or indeed to dismiss them in the other two. So could you share then some 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 steps or, or some details on, on what organisations really should be doing? You know, obviously they shouldn't be going down the route of constructive dismissal or whatever the case was in that uh, situation you mentioned, but what what should they perhaps be doing in order to accommodate or, or support those uh, experiencing menopause? Again, yes, I think the, the, the crucial thing here <clears throat> is actually awareness raising and education. As I said earlier, there's a lot of mythology around menopause, there's a lot of misunderstanding, there's a lot of stereotype, or stereotyping I should say, and there's also that discomfort around, ooh, old women's bodies, ooh, too much information. 
Now, we genuinely feel that the only way round this is through it. So to raise awareness around menopause and to say that this is no more remarkable and no more necessarily problematic than a woman who is supported while she's pregnant, takes a maternity leave and then come back to work, comes back to work in, um, after she's had the baby. So education and awareness raising are super important across the workforce. We think that line managers in particular need training on making what the legislation calls reasonable adjustment to support menopausal women. We think they also need training in having difficult conversations because this is still a very sensitive issue. We would like to see tailored absence policies whereby if a woman's experiencing the need to have repeated short absences because of her menopausal symptoms, that they should be badged as the result of an ongoing health condition rather than the basis of performance management. We'd like women, if possible, to have access to good ventilation and good natural light. That could be as simple as providing a USP desk fan for somebody. We'd like them to have access to uh, cold drinking water and good toilet facilities. We'd like them not to have to wear heavy or synthetic workwear or uniform where possible. And we'd also like them to be able to ask to work flexibly, perhaps from home or perhaps coming in later and staying later on days when they're feeling particularly symptomatic, because evidence shows that can really help. Um, and also it's important to remember that in the UK at least, everybody, as long as they work for the same employer for six months or more, has the statutory right to request flexible working doesn't necessarily mean that it should be granted, but certainly the tribunal evidence alone suggests that had these sorts of provisions, not just flexible work, but all the other things that I was talking about, had these been made available to the women concerned, then the likelihood is their employers would never have landed up in at tribunal. What strikes me when you were talking through those key aspects, those key requests, demand requirements, however you wish to phrase them, was that they actually just seem like common sense sorts of things that should be really extended to everyone. Um, there's nothing ridiculous in there. It's just about supporting the people in, in the workplace. Or have I misunderstood something? Is that No, no, not at all. And if, if you could see me, Laurie, you'd see me nodding my head <laughs> <laughs> very enthusiastically. And, you know, again, this is an argument that we make a lot that actually all of these things and a whole host of others like for example specialized occupational health support or employee assistance program support we think all of these things should be available to anyone of any gender who's experiencing any kind of difficulty at work we know that flexible working can really help across a range of different situations we also know that it isn't just menopausal women who might benefit from not having to wear incredibly heavy or very synthetic workwear in fact there was a a really nice scheme put together at Manchester Police Service um, when they went over to offering breathable uniforms some years ago now. And instead of badging this as something for menopausal women, whether they were police staff or police officers, they initially badged it as this might be particularly helpful if you cycle to work. Because it means that, you know, you might get hot when you're cycling, but the uniform allows you to breathe and not feel as hot and sweaty when you arrive. But you didn't, and this is the important thing, you didn't have to disclose why you wanted the uniform. You could simply pitch up and ask for it. So I think you're absolutely right. I think there are lots of things going on here that actually 
the more, shall we say, progressive and enlightened employer should be providing anyway, and some of which, as I say, even if you're not progressive and enlightened, will keep you out of an employment tribunal. And, and they're just common sense uh, at, at the end of the day, which is which is just mad, really. Are, are there any examples of, of good practice? I know you mentioned there Manchester Police, but are there any other examples you could point to, good case studies or, or otherwise, that, that might be relevant? Yeah, absolutely. I, I should say as well, before I answer that specific question, is that, again, the, the experience that we've had shows that actually just empathy and understanding goes such a long way at work. So even if women know that their employer is starting or at the beginning of creating menopausal interventions, that can really help their quality of working life. But to speak to your specific question, uh, what we're seeing actually, and I think this is really because of the very good graces and the most amazing work done by people like Hempicked, is that there's a lot of sectors which are becoming much more menopause friendly, to use the um, that jargon. So lots and lots of universities, for example, I'm delighted to say that the Open University is at the beginning of the journey. Um, but the first university to introduce a formal menopause policy and menopause support was my previous employer, the University of Leicester in 2017. Sadly, they appear not to want to engage in good employment practices anymore, but that's another story. But in between times, there have been tens, twenties, thirties of universities that have, have intervened in this space. Lots of um, good examples from the police service, which again, we might think is quite interesting because we tend to think of it as quite a male-dominated or masculine environment. We've also seen interventions in um, the energy and utility sectors. So, for example, Seven Trent have done some brilliant work. In transport, we've seen Network Rail do brilliant work. Manufacturing, uh, Pepsi have done some great work. Morrison's and Sainsbury's in the retail sector and others. I could go on. There are actually a lot of examples now of, of particularly big employers really taking up the baton and really wanting to support their their menopausal staff in ways that that we really do um, approve of and acclaim. I think when I speak to people like Deborah Garlick, who's the founder of Hempick Menopause in the Workplace, who I work very closely with, um, we both agree, as do those around us, that perhaps the next frontier, if you will, um, is small and medium-sized enterprises because often bigger employers have more resources to throw at this kind of thing. So what I think we want to do now is is move on to creating more bespoke and tailored support um, for employers in small and medium-sized enterprises. And is that, do you feel, part of a broader change that has to happen in society rather than simply, you know, individual businesses or organizations making those changes. There really there is a, a much greater need for societal change to recognize and acknowledge these these challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it, it's no um it's sorry, it's scarcely more than a truism to say that um in the UK and in the global north more generally, um, we're we're an aging population. 
you know, more and more of us, uh, at least who, who, as I say, have, have the appropriate sort of bodies, um, there are much larger numbers now of us who, who will experience menopause at, at, at some time in their life. And a lot of people who are experiencing it now because we um, because we are aging and of course we, we spend longer at work now and women are much like more likely to be in work. So for employers in particular, we, we think that's a really clear case. But what we would also like to see um, is, and with, I think this is starting to happen, particularly through the work of people like Davina McCall and Mariella Frostrup and all, all the other celebrities that, that, I've, that I've talked about. I would really like to see menopause as, as no more remarkable a topic of everyday conversation, whether it's at work or elsewhere, than pregnancy or maternity, any other stage in somebody's reproductive life, if you like. And one way that I think we could do that, although this really isn't my area, is to actually educate younger people about it, to make it a mandatory part of, I think in my day they called it sex education. I, I hope they've come up with a better descriptor than that now, because that does seem to rather narrow the lens. But certainly um, I feel that both young men and young women at school um, should from quite an early age be introduced to this concept and this phenomenon in the same way that they're taught about menstruation and pregnancy and giving birth. And it's interesting you say that because when I just you know momentarily reflect back on on the sex education or whatever it was called when, when I uh, when I was at school I, I recalled those initial phases the menstruation and pregnancy and, and birth and so on being talked about, but I really do not remember the other end of that cycle at all being even mentioned. It just wasn't something that came into the conversation. But I think you're, you're right, just building that in and that more whole of life approach is absolutely relevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know we, we've spoken quite a bit about the, the UK and, and it makes sense you're, you're based in the UK, but are there any countries that have really got this right or, or are perhaps ahead of the pack when it comes to, to policies uh, regarding the menopause? I don't always say this, Laurie. In fact, I very rarely say it. Um, but the strong evidence shows that the UK is in fact ahead of the pack. So at least in one area of progressive policy at an organisational level in particular, um, certainly when I talk to my friends and colleagues who were working in this space in places like the Netherlands and Australia and the States, they're very clear that, that we are ahead of the game here. Um, I, I don't think we're a shining beacon uh, here yet. I think we've got a long way to go. But I do think that there's been much more awareness and much more progress in the UK than there has been elsewhere. It's also true to say that there have been dis discussions at a governmental level. And I know that now there is a particular push around women's health and women's well-being. Uh, there's a actually a consultation out at the moment, which I, I must remember to respond to. And one of the things that they're indexing there is something that they want to take um, country level or national level action on is the menopause which is absolutely wonderful to see and I don't think I could have conceived of 10-15 years ago. Professor Joe Bruce of the Open University Business School many thanks for your time and insights. You're very welcome Laurie thank you for having me on. La 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 la
Lala Song, Electronic Beat Time, and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.